Well, good morning. If you would take your Bibles once again and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Let's read together the first four verses. And I'm going to be using the New King James in case it's a little different. If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's once again pray and ask for God's assistance. Heavenly Father, we come uh, bare before your word and would pray that you would uh, give us understanding, give us uh, the same spirit that inspired this word to enlighten our understanding, to give us wisdom and instruction, exhort us, convict us, Lord God, and encourage us and help us in every way, both to understand and as we already prayed. Uh, to be doers of this, your word, Heavenly Father, we pray for that grace and help this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> the Bible warns us over and again of the danger, the very real and present danger of hypocrisy, of having the appearance of being a true child of God without having the true power of God, without having the true power, and grace of God in Christ coursing through our veins. It is possible so to be, of having a form, a shadow, an outline of godliness without having the root of the matter in us, without having the person, presence, and effectual transforming power of the Spirit of God changing us over from the inside out into the very pattern and likeness of Jesus Christ. It's possible for us only to put on airs and to put on forms. And so the Bible warns us, searches us by what it says. Now let me say this morning, by way of reminder, and it is a reminder, for this has been said different ways very often, from this pulpit of the what is the place and the purpose of the law of God. What is the place and purpose of the law of God, the Ten Commandments. What place does it have in the Christian life? We've been hearing a whole series of sermons on the Ten Commandments. We've come to the middle or toward the end of expounding the Eighth Commandment. And we need to remind ourselves now and again, what is the purpose of the law of God? In Reformed theology, we often speak about as the threefold purpose of the law of God or the three different ways that the law of God is used and useful to us. First, the law is set forth as the perfect righteousness of the God of heaven, showing us God's moral character and convicting us and showing us our failures, our shortcomings, our sins against his holy law. That is the first purpose to convict us of sin and to show us these things. The law being our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The second use of the law is a civil use. 
we sometimes call it a civil use to restrain evil. Now, it's a civil use not only in the civil government to use the law of God as a restraint on the evil designs of evil men, even though they may not be aware that it's the law of God that they're enforcing when they're enforcing laws against stealing, laws against killing, and the like. They may not even be aware of the laws they are enforcing, but it has that use. But not only so, the civil use of the law is to restrain evil even in our households. Fathers and mothers use the law of God to restrain the evil that our children might otherwise do. It can be used in our schools. It can be used in a variety of ways. There is a, a civil element or aspect or use of the law of God. But it's the third use of the law of God that we often think about. It is a guide to the regenerate. It is a guide to the godly to understand what is our duty before you, O Lord, to instruct us and guide us in what is right and pleasing. Yes, the Ten Commandments are still that guide for us under the New Testament, under the New Covenant. It is as this third use that the Reformed confessions and catechisms have placed those questions to be instructive to the new and veteran Christian who is working out his own salvation with fear and trembling. If you look at the catechisms, where do they place the questions about the Ten Commandments? Well, they place them after those questions about who Christ is and the redemption that he came to bring about. Likewise, we remind ourselves, even in the Old Testament, those Ten Commandments were given after God had redeemed Israel out of Egypt. This morning, I wanted to put us in mind of that transformative gospel, that and some specific means and methods under it that enable us to live out the Christian life, to keep and fulfill those commandments by focusing on the early verses of Colossians chapter 3. But by way of a preface and to give some context to Colossians chapter 3, I want to look at two bookend passages before and after what we already read this morning. So look with me at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 20. Here Paul writes, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And then look with me also over at chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 5. Therefore, he writes, put to death, mortify your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie 
to one another. Now to the outside observer, the man in chapter 2 is in something of a pit, he's in something of danger, he's gone astray from the right path. And he looks very similar to the man on the plateau in chapter 3. He looks very similar to the outside observer if he saw these two men living in society, observing them perhaps day in and day out at the workplace, day in and day out at the na- and as uh, neighbors to him. He might observe some things that are very similar in their lives. Both of them seem to be devoutly religious, striving to do what they believe is well-pleasing to God. You can observe that about both these men. Both are trying to check and subdue their sinful inclinations. They know they have a native inclination towards sin, and they're trying to check it by one way or another. Both of them seem to be doing that. Both of them have a similar outlook as to what is sinful and wicked and immoral. Perhaps both regard the Ten Commandments as the very yardstick of measuring what is good and evil. And we could draw other parallels between these two, but we will also notice a great contrast between them as well. And we must ask the question, what makes the difference? We will be reminded what it is that makes that difference and that there is a hidden secret aspect that makes that difference that even a careful observer will not be able to detect and observe. Some time ago, some of you might have seen a debate of sorts between Dennis Prager and Alistair Begg. And Dennis Prager is a a brilliant man, a writer, a talk show host. Uh, He even conducts symphonies. But he's a devout Jew. He's a very devout Jew. He's written books on the Ten Commandments and other things. Mm -hmm. Alistair Begg, on the other hand, is a Scottish man who ended up in Cleveland as a pastor, and he's a faithful reformed preacher of the gospel. And I watched only the introduction to this, but Begg went right after him with the gospel, right after Prager. But Prager seemed to hold his own, defend himself, and I don't think at the end of the day, won him over to Christ. So there's, there's something to be observed there. Here is a man who's very religious, Dennis Prager. Here is a man who's very religious, Alistair Bay. And yet, what makes them to differ? What makes them to the differ? To the outside observer, they're both very religious fellows. That might be all there is between them. Well, let's take a closer look at this man in the pit of chapter 2. This man in the pit of error in the pit of works righteousness. He seems to be stuck in some kind of a rut. Notice here that Paul, chapter 2, addresses his warning here to the believers in Colossae. He's not just addressing himself to some of the inhabitants of the city of Colossae. He's addressing himself to those in the church and the danger of them falling into this error, into this pit. And so he does address himself to them. Verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to to these regulations? They're in danger of falling into the same ditch. And we are in danger of doing so as well. 
Doubtless there was a movement afoot to adhere to a stricter asceticism there in Colossae, growing out, no doubt, of agnosticism that had begun to creep its way into the church. Someone had contrived a whole list of regulations that would prove the path of holiness. Note the restrictions, verse 21. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Paul here doesn't go into all the particulars of it, but kind of generalizes. Here you're following after regulations for regulation's sake, thinking that they are going to lead to the path of holiness. Paul responds first by one, showing it is an errant preoccupation with perishing and passing things of this world. It is an errant preoccupation with perishing and passing things of this world. Notice what he says, verse 22, which all concern things which perish with the using. Why are you so preoccupied about rules, about food and drink and a host of other things? All that's going to perish away. He writes elsewhere to the Romans, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Remember how sternly he warned the Galatians when they had gotten off course, when they had gotten away from the pure gospel of Christ and said, we keep, we obey the gospel, we believe in Jesus Christ, but now we also keep the law, not simply the law of the Ten Commandments, but the Jewish laws. And Paul had to write to them, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? So here also, these believers in Colossae had fallen into the error that now, yes, they're believers, but they're going to subject themselves to some kind of teachings of men, some kind of regulations by which they're going to live out their Christian life. Paul, secondly, says they are man-made doctrines and commandments. They are man-made, verse 22 again, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These rules and regulations that have been drawn up and which you're seeking to live under were not drawn up from the holy oracles of God. They're the commandments of men. They're the doctrines and teaching of men. Remember what our Lord said. This people draw near to me with their lips, yet is their heart far from me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. And some of these believers in Colossae had fallen into the same error, and Paul is trying to get them up out of that ditch, back to living by faith in Christ alone. Thirdly, Paul says their appearance of sanctity and holy religion is only so in appearance. It is a facade, a show, externally impressive, but inwardly impotent, lacking genuine sanctifying powder, power. Notice what he says, verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, there's a lot of discussion about how to translate and interpret this verse. I think the, King, the New King James here is pretty straightforward, 
and explains what he is saying, the essence of it. Uh, J.B. Lightfoot kind of paraphrases it to kind of give us a picture of, of what the verse is saying. He says this, All such teaching is worthless. It may bear the semblance of wisdom. It might look, it might appear to be a wise course of action, but it wants the reality. It's lacking the truth, the substance. It may make an officious parade of religious service. It may vaunt its humility. It may treat the body with merciless rigor, but it is entirely fails in its one aim. It is powerless to check the indulgence of the flesh. At the end of the day, it's powerless to really check the indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't stop the heart from yearning after those sinful things for which it yearns. Mere regulations, mere doctrines and teaching of men will never impart the strength, the wisdom needed to do so. Let me quote here a description of this from H.A. Ironside. Now, most of you won't know who he is, and uh, it would be very rare to hear him quoted in a Reformed Baptist church, I can tell you that. But he nails the point on this. He says, not only in modern times, but in those early days of Christianity, which we are considering, men have laid the axe, or the pruning knife, if you will, to the fruit of the tree, as though the tree might be improved if the bad fruit were cut off. Get men to reform, to sign pledges, to put themselves under rules and regulations, to starve the body, to inflict physical suffering upon it, and surely its vile propensities will be at least annulled, if not eliminated, and little by little, men will become spiritual and godlike. The formula which thousands have taken up within the last few years, every day in every way, I am getting better and better, expresses the mind of many, but no amount of self-control, no physical suffering, whatever, can change the carnal mind, called emphatically the flesh. All that striving cannot change the heart and the mind. He goes on to give an example. St. Jerome tells us how having lived a lecherous life in his youth, after he became a Christian, he fled from all contact with the gross and vulgar world in which he had once sought to gratify every fleshly desire. He left Rome and wandered to Palestine, and there lived in a cave near Bethlehem, where he sought to subdue his carnal nature by fasting almost to starvation. And then he tells us how disappointed he was when, exhausted and weary, he fell asleep and dreamed he was still riding among the dissolute companions of his godless days. The flesh cannot be starved into subjection. It cannot be improved by subjecting it to the ordinances, whether human or divine. But as we walk in the Spirit and are occupied thus with the risen Christ, we will be delivered from the power of fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. That's the way out of this pit. That's the way out of this error that those Colossian Christians, some of them, had fallen into. And Paul now is going to try to lead them out of it, to lead them out of that error by following mere doctrines of men to correct 
their sinful inclinations. Some of you remember the story of John Wesley, who, uh, when he was in college and thereafter, they created the Holy Club, and they were very strict. They fasted often. They got up early and prayed. They did a host of number of things. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, even George Whitfield for a time was part of this Holy Club. And then John went to Georgia to preach the gospel to the Indians. And on his return, he said, I went to preach the gospel to the heathen, but who will preach it to me? He even wasn't, he wasn't even converted at that time. All those regulations they had put themselves under had not changed his heart, had not led him to Christ until he was in that Aldersgate meeting and felt his heart strangely warmed. And God did that work of grace. Well, that brings us to the focus of our text in chapter 3. If a life of strict discipline and ascetic practices is not the path to holiness, what is the way? And what are the means? Let's look again at Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. If ye then, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these, those things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The Apostle Paul is going to give the readers at Colossae and to all readers of this epistle two clear pointed directives, but there is a contingency. There is a contingency for them before they follow those directives, a necessary and qualifying if, if, that must be true of us if we if those directives are properly to be followed. What is the qualification? What is it? What is this if that Paul speaks of? What must necessarily be true of us to qualify us to obey these two imperatives, these two commands that Paul gives? Notice what he says. If you were raised with Christ. If you were raised with Christ. That doesn't mean you grew up in Nazareth and were his neighbors. Not that kind of raising. What is he speaking about? I was never dead. I was never buried in a tomb or anywhere else for that matter. I know and believe and take it on faith that the infallible proofs and certain testimony of the scriptures that Christ was crucified, dead and buried, and that he was raised up. I take that by faith, but not I. I was never dead and raised up. So what are you talking about, Paul? Well, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 12, because he already spoke of this earlier. Chapter 2, verse 12. He says, We are buried with him, that is, with Christ, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that was contrary 
to us. Now, the process of baptism is not a burial and a resurrection spiritually, but it's a picture of a burial and a resurrection that Christ does in the hearts of every believer. It's spiritual in nature. It's not physical in nature. It's spiritual in nature. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Christ quickened you to life. You were raised up with him by his power. What comes with that? What comes with that? Forgiveness of sins, the wiping out of the handwriting of ordinances that was uh, held against us, that we were guilty of, violating all these commandments. And Christ paid for that. That was the power of God that wrought a resurrection in our souls. If then you are raised up, Paul saying, if you're raised up in that sense, if you're a true believer, if you've been converted by his grace, then these two commandments are for you. Look with me also with verse, uh, verse 20 of chapter 2. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, okay, here again, he's calling upon them, saying, if you died with Christ, if you were raised up by his grace, you died to the world and all its instruction and all that it calls us to do. We're dead to that, as Paul writes to the Galatians, I am crucified unto the world and the world unto me. Paul is saying, if that's you, then you're called to live out this Christian life. To those converted, raised up, he commands, seek those things which are above. Seek those things which are above. That's his first imperative, a present active imperative. It calls to mind other times we are told to seek. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. For here we have no continuing city, we read in Hebrews, but we seek one to come. So what are we seeking here? We're seeking those things that are above. Isaiah called us to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What are we told to seek? We're told to seek the things above. And if that wasn't enough, he clarifies it. The things above where Christ is. We're not seeking heavenly bodies. We're not seeking things beyond our reach and measure. We're seeking that heaven where Christ is, who has gone before us, the forerunner of our faith. We're to seek those things that are above. We are to seek earnestly. We are to seek so as to find. We are to seek so as to understand those things that are above. We are to seek so as to apprehend, to lay hold of those things of heaven above. We are seek to, we are to seek to be enthralled with those things that are above, in love with them, captivated by them. That's what we need to seek to do. And we need to seek to be united with those things that are above. Seek as a pilgrim, passing on to those things above. That's what we're to seek after. Seek those things that are above where Christ is. Now the second present active imperative, the clear directive, the forthright command Paul gives is in the second verse. Ephesians 3 verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. 
Set your mind on things above, or as the older translations have it, set your affections on things above. Now, while the word mind is a fair translation, the word is richer and fuller than that word suggests and may perhaps be better translated or understood this way. Set your whole disposition, your whole soul disposition on things above. Be wholeheartedly disposed to think about, to set your heart, mind, and soul on things above. There's something more to it than just intellectual curiosity. This word, phreneo, is used frequently in the Bible, but I just want to give you a sampling of it. Turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 1. We're just going to stay in Philippians. He uses this word several times just in the book of Philippians. And I want us just to get a flavor of what Paul is exhorting us to in using this word. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. He says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. Now the word there, to think this of you all, there's our word, okay? So Paul is not just thinking about these Philippian Christians. He has a real passion and desire and interest in their welfare and their sanctification and well-being. So there's something more than just being mindful of them. Look with me at chapter 2 and verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Here he uses it twice, like-minded and of one mind. So here it's not just thinking intellectually. There's something more to be grasped in this word and this idea that he's saying of being like-minded, of being of one mind. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a whole state of mind, a whole state of disposition that was in Christ Jesus, who, for our sakes, humbled himself and became a man, as he goes on to explain. That was his mindset. That was his disposition. So it's not just some intellectual thing that Christ did. Chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Here again, uh, uses the word twice. If you That we're to have this mind, that is to say this disposition, this uh, inclination of heart, affection, soul, that we're to have that. Look with me at verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Let us be of the same inclination, the same disposition. Chapter 4, verse 2. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Not just to think exactly alike about things, but be like-minded toward one another. Have the same disposition of heart and soul toward one another. Verse Chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. 
though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now there the word is translated care, because it didn't make a lot of sense to translate it mind. Now at last your mind for me has flourished again, though you surely did mind, but you lacked opportunity. So here it again, it's the idea of a disposition, a disposition of heart, mind, soul, and affection towards him. And they had that desire, they had that disposition, but they didn't have the opportunities to minister to him as they wanted. So there we get something of a flavor. When Paul says, set your mind on things above, what is he saying? He's saying, set your affection, your heart, your soul, your whole disposition on things above. Set your mind, your care, your affection, your whole disposition to things above. Now note the phrase, where Christ is, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Here again is language that is familiar. We read several times similar expressions throughout the New Testament of how Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, the hand of favor, the hand of privilege, the hand of exaltation. There he is at the right hand of the Father. Let me just give you a couple of those. I'll only mention a couple. Jesus had prophesied in Luke 22, verse 69, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. There's coming a day Christ is raised up in his capacity as both God and man, Savior and Redeemer, Holy High Priest. He sits there on the seat of power right next to the Father. He has been exalted to that place of power. Another uh, remark he makes in Mark 16, verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. There again, after his resurrection and here, after his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Why am I saying all this? Because Paul is directing us in the scripture to set our heart, mind, affections on things above where Christ is and where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Passing over several other verses that say the same. This verse shows us that Jesus is still there, functioning as high priest in that exalted place of honor. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, we read this. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, the summary. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Where is our Lord now? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, in his capacity as high priest, ever living to make intercession for us. Ever living to make intercession for us. Inasmuch as the apostle exhorts us, commands us to seek and set our minds on things above, not simply in a general or generic way, but where Christ is, he being the focus, and he being the focus as he sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. It is well for us to take this in, to gaze at what few glimpses are revealed to us of these great scenes in heaven. We're to set our minds and affections there, so we do well 
to often think of Christ there exalted. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. I want to engage in something of an exercise here. Let's do here what Paul calls us to do. Let us think, let's be mindful of Christ there, seated at the right hand of the Father. We're going to read this passage and listen and imagine the scene in the drama, in the glory that Christ has there in the throne room of God. He says this, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Okay, here's a picture. There's the Father. He has this scroll, and it's all sealed up, seven seals along its backside. Who is worthy to open up those seals? Those seals, we, as we learn, as we read on, represent God's final judgments coming upon the world. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. So I wept much, John speaking here, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll to look on it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. How has he prevailed? He has prevailed because he came, he fulfilled the mission that the Father sent him to redeem a people for his namesake. And there he was back in heaven in the throne room. And so he had the authority to open these seals. Verse 6, And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and as I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives 
forever and ever. Here's a glimpse, here's a glimpse for us of Christ sitting on the throne, being there in the throne room, exalted to that high place. And Paul says, seek those things that are above. Paul says, set your heart, your mind, your affection on those things. So we should think often of glimpses and chapters of the scriptures like this that give us a vision, a view, an unveiling, a little bit of what Christ is doing in heaven, of what Christ is like, exalted there, that our hearts and minds would think on those things, and we would fall down and worship as well with the, with the beasts and the, and the elders, that we would worship our Lord for this great grace and glory that is before us. So Paul exhorts us, seek those things that are above. Set our minds, be mindful, this mindset, this disposition of thinking about Christ at the right hand of the Father. Let me read one other comment from uh, John Eady's commentary. He comments on this passage back in Colossians chapter 3, and he says, Whatever the character of the things to be sought may be, they are to be found with Christ. Truth and blessing are from him. Promise and hope center in him. Whether the things above be a fuller glimpse of heaven, a higher preparation for it, or a sweeter foretaste of it. Whether it be learned to learn its songs, reach a deeper sympathy with its enjoyments, or realize a living unity with its population. Still, Christ, as God's right hand, enjoys a special preeminence as that those attainments are from him and the song, the service, and the inhabitants of heaven before him as their object or as their Lord. As the salvation which they experience comes from that blood by the shedding of which he rose to his glorious position, as there he intercedes so effectually and governs so graciously by word, providence, and spirit, as there he holds heaven in their name and prepares them for it, as their present life and peace originate in union with him, a union to be realized yet more vividly when he shall bid them come up hither. Therefore should their desires stretch away upward and onward towards him and the scene he occupies on the right hand of the glorious majesty. Amen. That's where our hearts should go, should wend to. Not getting preoccupied, don't touch, don't taste, don't do this. Get preoccupied with those things. Set our hearts, minds, affections on things above. Seek those things earnestly, and they will help us against the indulgence of the flesh, as he'll go on to say in verse 2. Now to return to our passage the seeking and setting our minds on Christ and things above is set in contrast to minding the things of the earth, to minding the things of the earth. If you're back at Ephesians chapter 3, let's look at that once more. He says, verse 2, set your mind on things above and not on the things on the earth. There's the contrast. Our minds are to be set above not on the things of the earth. We are in this world, but we are not to be of it, nor to be captivated by it, not to be mesmerized by its physical and soulful promise, 
to use this world while not abusing or misusing it, we are told and exhorted. This language in Colossians reminds us of what our Lord taught and told us. Lay not for yourselves, right? Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. And then he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There will your mind be. There will your affections be. That's what you'll be mindful of wherever you have your treasure. Why is it so hard for a rich man to enter heaven? Why is it so hard for the rich man to enter heaven? How hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said. Why? Because he has his heart fixed here a treasure below, an anchor point here where his wealth holds him to this clod of earth, this passing realm where money is power, money is prestige, money is security. He has his heart fixed on those things, and it's hard for him to break away. Almost impossible. The rich young ruler turned away sad because he had great riches. The gospel alone has the power to break such binding chains. The gospel alone can break such binding chains that we have to this world and this life, whether it be riches or other pleasures or whatever it be, only by the power of the gospel. Notice he goes on then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's the promise held out. When Christ which is our life, or who is our life. Or you might just have, when Christ, our life, appears. Can you say that today? Can you say that Christ is your life? That is your life. My life is Christ. Without Christ, life is nothing, meaningless, worthless, hopeless. I don't want to live even without Christ. Christ is my life. And I am looking forward earnestly for his appearing. For when he appears, I'm going to appear with him. I'm going to see him, embrace him, know the one who I'm only loved from a distance. I've only loved blindly because I have not seen him. Then and there I shall see. Then and there, oh, what glory that will be. When Christ, who is our life, Christ, our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Is that the heart of your life? Is that what you're looking forward to? Look with me to 1 John chapter 3. Familiar words, 1 John chapter 3. A similar sentiment he expresses here. He writes, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's the hope for us. The world does not know us, does not realize that we're somehow the children of God. To them, they think, 
You're just some religious kooks. That's all you are. There's nothing to, you're holding on to some, something that cannot help or sustain you. It doesn't feed you, doesn't clothe you, doesn't give you pleasure, except in some odd kind of strange way that you find some pleasure in worshiping a God you cannot see or know about. To the world, we're a strange bunch, aren't we? The world did not know him, and so it will not know us. But there's coming a day when he will be revealed and he will vindicate our trust in him, our resting in him, our hoping in him, our expectation of his return. Put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust wholeheartedly. That day is coming and it won't be long, although it may seem long. We may seem to have lived long in the Christian life, waiting, hoping, expecting. Let us be renewed in the idea of setting our heart and affection on things above. It will sustain us. It will help us. Let us renew ourselves in the hope that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. All the things that we're not now, we shall finally be the things we want to be. We want to be like Christ. We know we fail and fall short of it. But here it says, then we shall be like him. And even now, everyone who has that hope and that expectation purifies himself, endeavors to put the way out of his life those things that so infect us. And that's what Paul goes on to say here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore, put to death, mortify your members which are on earth, fornication and cleanness and so forth and so on. We won't get into all that. But there's the strength and power to live out the Christian life by focusing on Christ alone, where he is, seated at the right hand of the Father, and all his power, and the promise of his return, and our complete and total transformation, and being conformed unto him on that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and bless you for your word. We thank you that you hold out such sure and certain promises, all oh, that to the world seem foolish, Oh, but to us are precious. Oh, how precious, Lord God. May these things be more and more precious to our souls. May we grow in faith. May we grow in expectation. Oh, Heavenly Father, search us out. Search us out that we might exalt in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who has taken away our sins, who has called us unto himself. And any who don't know you, Lord God, know that blessedness. May today they call upon the Lord and be saved to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.